Hi, thanks for joining us this evening. We're here at the 2010 American Heart Association meeting, and I have with me tonight Dr. James Young of the Cleveland Clinic. We're going to be talking about um, heart failure. After all, it's a $23 billion expenditure for America annually. It's a very important topic, and we'd like to talk about what's new in heart failure from this meeting. I'll tell you that we're going to start with emphasis. We'll talk about RAFT, Smart AV, Advanced HVAD trial, and the ASCEND trial. So, um, Jim, let's talk a little bit about emphasis HF first, okay? This was a trial of a plerinone in class two heart failure patients. Uh, there were 1,300 patients each enrolled with a plerinone versus placebo. The EF was less than 35% as the inclusionary criteria, and the GFR uh, patients of less than 30 were excluded. And what this trial actually demonstrated was a decrease in the primary endpoint of death or hospitalization for heart failure by 37%, mortality by 24%, and heart failure hospitalization by a staggering 42%. But there were some concerns about this and some questions, so I'll just start with um, the patients that were excluded had low GFR, so we don't really know how this is going to perform with regard to hyperkalemia and a lot of the population, because we don't know what the GFR is and a lot of our patients. So could you take it from there? Yeah, well first let me, let me preface this uh, by thanking you for asking my opinion about this particular meeting in heart failure. For, for me, this is one of the best meetings I've been at in a long time uh, with some really um, impressive clinical trials coming out that I think are going to affect our practices long term. And emphasis, I think, is at the top of the list, in my opinion. I, I've described it after looking at the results and looking at the data and the publication uh, as perhaps a home run. Um, if not that, um, you know, maybe, maybe we got on third base with it at least. Um, the, the issue is dramatic reduction in the primary endpoint. And, you know, a 42% reduction in rehospitalization for heart failure with a median follow-up of only 21 months, that, that's big. Uh, Eplerinone added on top of great therapies in an environment where aldo antagonism is accepted as a good therapy in, in more advanced heart failure and post-MI, but not used very much. Uh, we do have to be cautious, though. After the Rouse trial, uh, people embraced um, spironolactone, and we saw a rebound phenomenon with increased hospitalization and death due to hyperkalemia in an Ontario database. Uh, so the bottom line is patients are going to need to have to be watched very carefully, and physicians are going to have to apply the criteria uh, very cautiously as well. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a high K kind of guy. You know, I hate hypokalemia. I think that gets you into more problems than a little bit of hyperkalemia. And frankly, I don't get too upset until it gets over six. I know it's a little bit radical. Uh, but uh, I think this is going to be making major impacts, and I hope it emphasizes a shift uh, to this therapy on top of other good therapies. The final point is, is that <clears throat> it was a plerinone, a little bit more expensive than spironolactone, uh, but the payoff may be in the endpoint reduction. It probably is uh, a class effect, in my opinion, aldo blockade, but a plerinone is better tolerated, much less painful gynecomastia in men, 
And there is a, a significant kind of under the covers problem with women and, and, and sexual um, uh, performance decrement that's a, that's a big deal with spironolactone. Home run. Would you uh, hesitate to extrapolate this information to patients with ejection fractions above 30%, say the 30 to 50% range, who are short-winded and having difficulty with heart failure? I would absolutely. Let's wait and see what TopCat shows. Another Burt Pitt uh, trial. Burt's been the guy that's driving this hypothesis for two decades now. And um, yeah, I'm not ready to stick my neck out there yet. You know, the other caveat to this is I think it's really important to educate our patients about lowering the potassium in their diet and with close follow-up of potassium. And I think with that, actually it crossed my mind today that I wish that we had that compound available that we covered last year, the potassium lowering entity. <laughs> but we're not quite there yet, and no. I guess we'll just have to wait and be careful. Um, let's talk a little bit about RAFT. Okay, RAFT was 1,800 patients with an ejection <coughs> fraction of less than 30%, mostly class two heart failure patients in which CRT was added on top of AICD therapy. And at six years, there was a 25% reduction in mortality and heart failure hospitalizations. The question I wanna ask you, does everybody need CRT? Yes. <laughs> I know that's a little bit of a bullish response, uh, but having been involved with Miracle, Miracle ICD, uh, like I was many years ago, and been so impressed with the symptomatic improvement the patient saw, neither of those trials was um, a significant morbidity, mortality reduction effort. But subsequent to that, all of that has been uh, falling in place. Uh, this particular trial, was another home run, uh, m maybe a walk-off home run even, um, that clearly demonstrated CRT does reduce mortality and rehospitalization. That had been a burning question about how much of the effect was CRT, how much of the effect was ICDs, and I think this trial clearly demonstrated that, and, and in a less ill population, albeit a population that had a wider QRS. Um, the other things that it raised was some questions about is it left bundle branch block or a wide QRS, meaning what about those right bundle branch block patients? So if you see patients uh, with low ejection fractions, mildly symptomatic heart failure even, a bit of a dilated heart, and a wide QRS complex that's a left bundle branch block pattern, um, boy, CRT, I think, is really important. I also think it's still important to couple it with an ICD. Sure. So CRT, ICD is where I think the action is right now. Um, let me ask you about the 12% of patients that were in atrial fibrillation in this trial. You know, I have lots of those patients. I have a patient right now that's failing <coughs> miserably and thinking about CRT in that patient. So what do you think about that issue? I, I think that there's a small subset that adds to the database there. Um, I'm still not entirely convinced about the benefits in atrial fib being quite as much as in sinus rhythm, to be perfectly frank. And I don't, with all due fairness uh, to the trial, I don't think we have a clear answer to that just yet. Going to be a subset analysis for another day, sounds like. What about SMART-AV? It looked at AV delay optimization techniques 
versus, uh, well, including echo-derived or smart delay algorithms versus nominal settings. Didn't really show any benefit. And I know that uh, our techs have been in our clinic. They used to come frequently and try to optimize the AV delay. We'd have several patients outside waiting for that to be done. It seems like we probably don't have to do that anymore. I agree. And I think uh, one of the major uh, bugaboos or falderals with uh, CRT uh, is how to manage some of the timing uh, and some of the adjustments that can be made to resynchronize the heart. And so the focus has been on these electrophysiologic adjustments versus echocardiographic guided adjustments. And what this trial did, very nicely done trial, is it showed it really didn't matter. Now, the one caveat that I had is that these are in all comers. Can you take somebody that, say, is a CRT non-responder and make a difference with any of these techniques? And I, I think that is yet to be uh, shown. But personally, I think it decreases the hassle and the falderall associated with it. You program the device and boom, out the door you go and you don't do iterative echocardiographic follow-ups on a routine basis. You don't use algorithmic-driven AV delay uh, programming, in my opinion. So it simplifies the management of the patient day-to-day -day who's the general sort of patient. Still a lot of questions about how to manage the non-responder. And talk to me a little bit about women and CRT. What, what makes us so unique? What are the problems there, <laughs> other than the obvious? <laughs> I'm not going to go there. <laughs> um, but this has been a bit of a controversy. I mean, some have gone as far uh, as saying you shouldn't use these devices in women because when you do subset analysis of some of the bigger trials, there doesn't seem to be any benefit. I think that's a problem of subset analysis and a problem of statistical and trial, statistical application and trial design. Uh, again, I can't think that women really, in that respect, are that much different than men, if, if, if any different. Um, you know, you get inside the chest and you start looking around and you you know, you look at an EKG and you look at a cardiac cath and I can't tell if it's a woman or a guy. <laughs> and so it, it, it bothers me that, that there, there perhaps could be. So I'm not going to take anything away from the other analysis that have been done. I'm not going to put a lot of credence into it. And this particular study, which seemed to show that, you know, maybe women um, were in a subset that weren't benefited quite as much by certain manipulation. Again, it, it, it's just a small subset. I, I just can't put much, much uh, into it. I want to ask you just a little uh, more of an off-topic uh, question, and that is, since Smart AV showed us that it's maybe not quite so complicated to program these devices, how do you feel about non-EPs implanting CRTs and AICDs, and I know that could be a long discussion, but I just kind of wanted your well. Let me put all of my very close uh, EP friends on notice, <laughs> uh, including Bruce Wilkoff at the clinic, who we've had lots of discussions and lots of debates about. Um, I'm pretty bullish about inserting, uh, particularly ICDs, ICDs by non-EP specialists. Um, CRT is a little bit more of a falderall because of that third lead, and um, perhaps uh, it's suitable for a heart failure specialist or an interventional cardiologist who's appropriately trained to be able to do this. But the fact is, is that there's a 
huge rising need, a huge imperative for these devices to go in, and then we really don't have enough programs or enough people to be able to do it. That begs the issue of paying for it, which is a totally different question, um, but I think we should train uh, people uh, who are not going to be interested in doing ablations or complicated mapping procedures or a lot of other really sophisticated EP uh, procedures to, to, to be able to put in these devices and manage them. Sure, I think there's no doubt about it. If you limit it to EPs, it's going to limit access Absolutely. Uh, to this therapy. So let's switch gears a bit and talk about ADVANCE. That was the HVAD trial. And this was a small gadget that was implanted in the pericardial space, did not require a pocket. Uh, there was less bleeding and therefore the hope for maybe less infection, but there was a worrisome stroke signal with this device. So what do you think about it? So uh, in a nutshell, um, this was not a huge trial uh, by uh, drug uh, or, or pacing device uh, criteria, but it was a huge trial with respect to ventricular assist device therapy. Now you have to remember these are near dead and dying patients. I mean, the, the, these are patients who are in extreme. And the challenge to move uh, mechanical circulatory support devices forward is huge. And yet uh, industry has been limited because of some of the previous requirements of doing big randomized clinical trials. So the first important thing about this study doesn't have anything to do with the observation the outcomes. The first important thing about the study was that the FDA supported um, the hardware device being evaluated utilizing uh, a control group that was from the registry called Intermax, the largest registry of mechanical circulatory support devices, um, an NIH-supported um, uh, study, and again, in the spirit of, of total uh, disclosure, um, uh, Jim Kirkland at UAB being the principal investigator, but I'm the study chair for Intermax. And so it was a huge step forward to be able to do a controlled trial where we actually had observational controls that were on a contemporaneous basis out of a registry. That being said, there are limitations to comparing the group. But nonetheless, what the heart, hardware device showed was is that it's a, it's a darn good device. 92% success rate at the six month period of follow up. So it's equivalent to the best device that we got in there which is a HeartMate 2 device. The advantages are one, smaller device, two, goes right into the chest, so you don't have to do an abdominal decision. Three, you can run the drive lines out the abdomen, and so a long way away in smaller drive lines, so infections are less, no question about that. Challenges of putting it in are less, no questions about that. Outcomes are pretty doggone good. And with respect to device reliability and infection, really good. The stroke signal um, has uh, always been something of concern with these devices, but the difference between the large bulky pulsatile devices and this device is significant, and whether or not that's going to pan out because of its size and whatnot, I don't know. But stroke is still a huge issue with mechanical circulatory uh, support. But I'm excited. We got another device that I think is going to be approved pretty soon, and we'll have a um, you know, a choice. Uh, the HeartMate 2 is an impeller-driven device. This one is a centrifugal type of device, so slightly different uh, continuous flow technology. And the final point is, is that this, as well as the rest of the Intermax data, shows that um, uh, you don't really need a, a heart, uh, a, a pulse. 
Exactly. <laughs> because they're pulseless devices primarily. I've had a heart make two patient or two and it's very interesting and intriguing trying to figure out what their blood pressure really is, you know. Yeah. That's one where if they stand up and don't faint, uh, and if they've got some pink, pink cheeks, their blood pressure is okay. That's the best you can do, isn't it? <laughs> um, tell me what you know about the Impala. It's a percutaneous device for acutely decompensated heart failure and shock. Right. And so I don't have any dealings with that, but I've read about it and I've heard about it. Tell me about your experience with that. Yeah, we, we uh, uh, have some cautious views on the device. I think, I think there is some enthusiasm building off of that. It, it, it has a long history uh, that goes back to these impeller-driven devices that were, were put in way back by Bud Frazier down in Houston first, so-called Wampler devices. And um, it's very rapidly spinning devices that can pull blood directly out of the left ventricle into the aortic root. Uh, designed as a temporary support device uh, to stabilize uh, circulation. Uh, and there is uh, lots of effort to get clinical trials done to see really where does it fit with the different kinds of devices that we can use acutely in patients. Well, it's an exciting time with regard to device, period. No question. Um, let's talk just a little bit about Ascend. Um, that was a hot topic even though it was a negative trial. And so for you, is Neceratide dead? Have we had the obituary? Right. What do you think about that? So in the spirit of complete disclosure, uh, almost a decade ago, I was involved with running the VMAC trial and with the development of, of Neceratide. And at that time, um, it was the first new drug for acute decompensated heart failure in 20 years. Milrinone was uh, the, the one before it. And there was a lot of use of these agents in the acute hospitalized patients to try to treat dyspnea. Um, it demonstrated in the VMAC trial that clearly better than placebo, nitroglycerin didn't beat placebo, but lots of criticism about the nitroglycerin dose. Never designed to impact mortality, to impact hospital readmission, or what we now call major morbidity of ADHF. And then meta-analysis, which I think shows the problem with meta-analysis, suggested mortality problems and renal function problems. Uh, and I think there were a lot of other problems with the drug, the way it was marketed and just all sorts of things. And it, it, it really developed a bad rap. Um, finally, the study was done that focused on safety. And that was the primary issue to do this particular trial. And to me, seeing those mortality curves and seeing those renal dysfunction curves um, at both the early as well as the longer term follow-up following right smack on top of one another sort of vindicated the analysis uh, and the database that we had that suggested it was a safe drug. But then you come back to does it do anything? And, you know, and people uh, say, well, it's an expensive placebo and there wasn't really an impressive uh, reduction in dyspnea symptoms and ta-da-da-da. Uh, so uh, there's still a lot of question about the drug and about these, these, these uh, natriuretic peptides uh, in general. Personally, I never thought that a drug that you'd give for 24, 48, 72 hours would improve morbidity or mortality at 160 days or 90 days. As long as it didn't cause harm, uh, you need to give them in different ways. Um, and the other thing that is important is in previous studies, as well as in this particular one, uh, dyspnea improvement was seen. Yes. Now, technically, 
um, by trial design at 24 hours a 0 .007 p-value compared to the placebo. And remember, this was on top of good therapy. I mean, people were getting diuretics and everything else. But a p-value of 0 0.077 was not statistically significant because of the a priori definitions of what statistical significance were driven by the multiple uh, endpoints that they were looking uh, at. To me, it's perfectly consistent with the older observations that, you know, it makes patients breathe easier. So in the long run, I think we can say it's a safe drug. I don't know that we can say much more about it. And you know, we'll see where it goes. I personally love that drug because things did happen with that drug. You know, yeah. patients diureased, you saw this beautiful crystal white urine cascading down the Foley <laughs> tubing. The patient seemed to feel better. Um, I really liked the drug, and yeah. I'm sorry to see that. But so you don't think maybe that we're finished with the human with the analogs of the human brain natriuretic peptide? We still need yeah. to look. So here, here's what I think this particular trial did do. Uh, it infused. It, it's going to reinfuse interest in the natriuretic peptides, and there is a lot of physiology that's uh, being uh, looked at. Uh, with this respect. I've been on some scientific advisory boards looking at the development of new natriuretic peptide compounds and I think some of them are really exciting. And not just for the acute administration for the ADHF patient but then segued into the kind of chronic treatment phase. I don't know. Personally I think that there's something to them but people are going to have to have the courage to fail, set up the clinical trials and move forward. I, I, you know. I'd like to think that we don't have to do a 7,000 patient trial uh, for every one of them. We'll never, we, we will never get a new drug for ADHF if, if we have to do that up front at the beginning. It's just, it just isn't practical. The business aspect of it isn't going to happen. But I think it doesn't completely shut down the hypothesis, and that's, that's rewarding to me. Well, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of uphill work. Yeah. But it's worth it, you know, for so many of our patients that are suffering. Yeah. So, Jim, do you have anything else you'd like to add about heart failure in 2010? <laughs> no, I think that about covers it. Uh, and we are sort of uh, coming down the road to the uh, end of the year, looking at all the things that have gone on. I think 2011 is going to bring us some additional promising information with regard to patient management strategies overall which I think is going to be key. Uh, we're all now pushed uh, for value, and value is quality over cost, and you know how the outcomes are going to pan out, I don't know. But um, it was a good year, 2010 was. Absolutely. Dr. Jim Young, I really appreciate all your insight into this very important topic. And thank you so much for joining us here for the Cardiology Show on theheart.org.